Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Today marks the 50th anniversary of Peter Frampton releasing his very first album in the U.S. on July 10, 1972. I spoke to Frampton when he performed at the Kennedy Center in 2016, sharing memories of growing up with David Bowie, developing his signature talkbox style, and recording hits like Do You Feel Like I Do, Show Me the Way, and Baby I Love Your Way. Mr. Frampton, it's an honor. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's very nice to be with you. Now, have you ever done Kennedy Center before, or is this the first time for you? No, um, it's uh, obviously I'm looking forward to it um, because it's an honor to play there. So um, yeah, we're and obviously we've heard it's it's a great uh, great theater there. Um, so yeah, can't can't wait. <laughs> we can't wait either. Um, so it's part of your um, raw acoustic tour. So is it going to be some of your old hits, but but more stripped down, or you know what what can we expect? Uh, well, basically it goes like this. Um, uh, it's an evening with the Framptons, basically. My son, Julian Frampton, opens up. Um, he plays half an hour with his writing partner. And, um, and then I come on and do about, I don't know, half a dozen songs totally on my own. And then my writing partner, Gordon Kennedy, comes on uh, with me uh, for the rest of the evening so I can play some lead guitar but it's just, uh, at the most, two acoustics. So, um, yeah, it's very, very stripped down. Um, and there's, it, it's a bit like uh, Storytellers Meets Unplugged. Um, it's a combination of the two, really. Um, just the stories about how the songs are written um, and what was going on, what guitars, what tunings. It's just a sort of... Um, an evening with me in the living room. You know, that's the way we, that's why we're keeping the theaters um, intimate as possible. <laughs> um, they seem to be getting bigger, though, each tour we do on these. But I, I like to keep it like a large living room so that we're, we're, we're we set the stage up like a living room anyway and that the audience are, are sort of part of it. Awesome. And you said your writing partner, um, Mr. Kennedy, it's perfect for the Kennedy Center. They, they named it after him. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, Kennedy at Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it'll be the Frampton Center after you're done with it. Um, all right, oh, so, thank you very much. <laughs> so you said it's going to be stripped down and everything, um, but will you still have your, your, your signature talk box up there? No. No, no it's, talk that's box. That's all electric. So, no, it's... Um, it's just going to be uh, acoustic, so you can come and see me do that in the uh, uh, with the band tours in the summer. But but this is all acoustic. There's nothing uh, nothing um, electric at all. 
That's really cool. Um, awesome. Well, um, t- take me back sort of uh, f- to, to the very beginning. You know, uh, you, you were born in, in, in the UK. How did, how did you fall in love with music? You know, what sort of artist uh, got you, you know, got you going in the beginning? Like, what were your influences? Uh, Buddy Holly, um, which you can hear in the show because do, we do a couple of Buddy Holly songs. Oh, nice. Um, uh, the English uh, Shadows, who backed up Cliff Richard. Those are my um, uh, English uh, influence, and and Hank Marvin, the lead guitarist of of that band, was was the one that he had the first fifty eight nineteen fifty eight Stratocaster in England. So awesome. everyone was all potential uh, young up up and coming guitarists were drooling every time he was on TV. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, it was uh, so that was all instrumental. The shadows, so kind of like the ventures were here in the sixties. Yeah, and um, so those were my influences. But but the an underlying um, the influence that's been there my whole life um, has been um, from my parents, who um, during the Second World War, before and after, uh, their favorites were. Uh, the Hot Club de France, which is Django Reinhardt nice. and Stefan Grappelli. And Django Reinhardt, arguably one of the best guitar players ever um, on, to be on this planet. And so I hated that when I first heard it when I was like seven years old. Uh, as my kids used to call it, Dad's listening to that silent movie music again. <laughs> um, <laughs> Peter Chaplin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, but it, it's, um, I'm still studying him today, and uh, 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 up until I kick the bucket, I will still be cursing at Django Reinhardt for being that good, but such an inspiration. Oh, my God. A lifelong inspiration. That's so cool. Is, is it true you, you, uh, you and David Bowie went to the same uh, high school? Yes, we did. Did you um, know him at the time, or were you just like acquaintances? Oh, no. We, well... See, my father was the art, the head of the art department, um, huge art department in this uh, in this technical high school, and um, so Dave was in um, was in my dad's art class for four years, <laughs> and so I knew of him before I went to the school. I was like three years younger, so when I did go to the school, I'd already seen him play around town in a couple of bands, one being the Conrads, and. Uh, so I made a beeline for Dave as as soon as because uh, my dad knew him, you know, and um, and so I said, Dad, is there anyone at school that you know is into rock and roll, play guitar and stuff? And he said, Well, yes, yeah, Jones is into it. I think you you bet look 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 him up. <laughs> so I I did, and um, uh, we used to jam on the art block stairs during lunchtime. I would we would take our guitars to school. And my dad would hide them away in his office. So, yeah, I've, I've known Dave since I was 12 years old. So, um, yeah, uh, lifelong friend and a friend of the family. My, whenever um, my my father um, always had a great relationship with him because he was very creative. And my dad obviously loved Dave's creativity and all the guys that ended up in in his art form for those four years, that syllabus that he would do. Um, and um, so uh, when we did the announcement at, in London for the Glass Spider tour, 
and we it was like a press conference come we played a couple of numbers that mum came up and uh after the show i said where's dave and where's dad and mum and they'd all disappeared off together with <laughs> so, awesome. so so yeah it was like um you know, he was, uh, was a big shock when we lost him, obviously, because I, I, I knew nothing about that. He kept it very quiet, as he did with most things. Yeah, well, thankfully, we still have all of his music to be up now. Oh, yes, we do. That'll and be I alive forever. Great memories of uh, him and my dad and my, and my you know. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a warm feeling I get now after... Obviously, it was for all for the whole world. It was a huge shock. So yeah, definitely. Take me. Um, speaking of playing those, you know, high school shows and everything. Take me into the the Little Ravens and the what was it? The true the true beats and the, the preachers. True beats, yes. And the preachers. Um, the Little Ravens. <laughs> the the badge for that my dad designed for the school. Get, get that um, <laughs> was Ravens on it because it was in Ravens Ravenswood, um, the area Ravensbourne. And so, um, yeah, um, he put on an end-of-term concert. Uh, my dad put, put this thing together um, for the school, for the, for, for the pupils, and then in the, in the afternoon and then in the evening for the parents. And it was kind of um, a variety show, shall we say. I, I got to play guitar in various different, um, with various different acts, as well as my own Little Ravens, which was me on guitar, a uh, friend of mine on piano, and then we had a um, we had a bass player, but we had no drummer. But Dave uh, and his band, um, uh, George and the Dragons, because it was George Underwood who ended up doing the cover for, also in my dad's class, did the cover for Ziggy Stardust. Oh, and cool. Dave. So um, it was called George and the Dragons, and Dave was Dave and George sang, and so they had a drummer but no bass player. So we we swapped, <laughs> and they were the headliners, and we were the support. So, nice. Yeah, there you go. That's so cool. Now, how did you end up getting hooked up with with the Herd and and then Humble Pie? Um, well, um, I was playing in a, after the after the Little Ravens and the True Beats, um, which was kind of uh, Adventures Shadows uh, sound-alike band. <laughs> um, I then joined a band when I was 14, 13 or 14, um, called The Preachers, who were um, produced and managed by Bill Wyman. Of oh, The Stones? Yeah. Oh, wow. Because the drummer of The Preachers was the original drummer of The Rolling Stones, Tony Chapman, before wow. Charlie. So you're getting a whole rock and roll history. Here. I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, I was still at school, and but playing with this band semi-pro, basically, and we recorded uh, a couple of singles and the beginning of an album. And uh, it was during my stay with, with that band that during the uh, school vacation when it was time to either go back to school or drop out when I was 16, um, the herd came to me and, and asked, would I join the band? Um, and to ask, so I had to ask my father, who's a teacher, can I drop out and join a rock and roll band at 16? Well, 
Uh, Mum had to do some severe calming down <laughs> on that because my dad, I don't think my dad wanted me to join a rock and roll band. So, uh, but in the end, uh, he let me. So I got into the got into the herd, and within a year, we were on top of the pops and and making hit records. And that's how, um, when that sort of came to an end for me, I just had enough of that band. It was too poppy. Um, that's when I um, ran into Steve Marriott uh, and Ronnie Lane of the Small Faces and ended up um, jamming with them and recording with them and stuff. And and that was when Steve left the Small Faces, I left the herd, and we formed Humble Pie. How do you think Humble Pie inspired what you would wind up doing on your own? That was so many lessons rolled into one band there. Uh, first of all, being around talent like Steve Marriott, uh, as well as the rest of the band, but he was uh, a special character. Um, there's not too many people that have that much talent in one person, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I learned an incredibly, uh, incredible amount of stage presence, um, singing, not that I have his voice um, or, or could ever sing like him, uh, his approach to guitar, which was different to mine, but I, it was inspiring. Um, so to be in that band was, I think, at that point is when I put, there you've got me playing a more lyrical, bluesy jazz side and Steve more heavy rock um, blues. So we, we put that together and it became very fiery musically. And I think, uh, that's when I actually started to realize that I had was creating my own style of guitar playing at that point. Yeah. And, um, and, and if it weren't for Humble Pie, I don't think that would have happened the way it did. Right, yeah, yeah. All right, so now we're, let's go on to, into your solo stuff. I think you had Ringo Starr in your first album, right? Yes, uh, Billy Preston. Wow. Uh, Ringo Starr, Klaus Vorman. Um, we're on a, all on a couple of tracks, yes. How did those first, you know, let's say two or three, I guess it was like three albums, um, how do you think you sort of, those help, you know, pave the way and set up what you would do in your, your huge international breakthrough, Frampton Comes Alive? I want to get to that in a second. But those t those first few solo albums, were were you still trying to, you know, were you sort of experimenting with, with who Peter Frampton is before your big breakthrough? I don't think I was. I was just doing what I do. You know, I, I, I didn't really think about it too much. I just, uh, it was a case of going out there and doing what Humble Pie had done, which was uh, record an album, go out and play on the bill in as big an environment, uh, an arena, open up for an arena act so that you grab some of their audience. That's, that's what it's all about. Right, or right. was then, was word of mouth physically. Now it's word of mouth on social network. Yeah, for sure. So that's what I did. Um, it worked for Humble Pie, and I was um, come off the road after a tour, and I would write and record another album and then go back and tour again um, uh, worldwide. And, and uh, it was actually four albums, uh, Wind of Change, Frampton's Camel, Something's Happening, and then the Frampton album, um, which contained Baby I Love You Way and Show Me The Way studio versions. Right. Whereas 
Frampton's Camelhead, Do You Feel? Um, and uh, so basically those, those four studio albums plus Shine On from Humble Pie, uh, that was about six years' worth of material that I turned out to be, uh, chose the best of, to be the, the uh, stage set at that time in 1975 when we went out and, and recorded what was to be Frampton Comes Alive. That's so cool. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Um, do you remember where you were when you wrote uh, Baby, I Love Your Way? Yes. Um, and Show Me the Way. It was the same day. Oh, um, really? <laughs> yeah, it was in Nassau and the Bahamas. I borrowed Steve Marriott's cottage on the beach. Um, I locked myself away there for three weeks. And um, after two weeks, I had nothing that I was very proud of. And um, so I had to get my act together for the last week, um, <laughs> trying to write a whole album, you know. <laughs> so uh, I, I woke up that first day of the last week and said, I better get my act together and, and picked up the guitar and and wrote show me the way um in the morning and then uh thought well this is the first thing that i feel is halfway decent you know this this might make it so i better um uh, i i i took i had some lunch and had a swim took in some sun and i thought well let's try this again i might be on a hot streak here so (laughs) i uh i sat outside as the sun was setting and wrote Shadows grow so long before my eyes, and they're moving across the page. And that was Baby, I Love Your Way, I wrote in the evening. So, uh, sunset. So, um, yeah, that's that's pretty much a good writing day. So that's a good day in the life of yes. Frampton. <laughs> yes. yes, it is. That's so cool. Uh, how, how about, we'll only go into one more, because we could go into a million of your songs, but what about Do You Feel Like We Do? Do, do you remember where you wrote that one? Yes, that was written um, when we were jamming the first uh, incarnation of Frampton's Camel in uh, the Old Kent Road in London, rehearsing. And I would bring my my reel-to-reel and stick a couple of mics up and record the the rehearsals, because we jam, you know. And um, so we finished this jam, and the band said, wind it back about three minutes because there was a there was a lick that you played, Peter, <laughs> that I think we might want to jam on some more. So we wound it back, and there it was. So um, the intro to "Do You Feel So?" Then yeah. we we just sat about that day, 
um, the four of us just writing that that whole arrangement. And I had a chorus that I'd written the night before, the actual do you feel like we do, or oh, feel like I do, um, part. And I wrote the verse um, while we were actually in the rehearsal room, I think. And I think I wrote the words down and said, well, these will do for now. I'll change them later. But, of course, I never did. So it's, it's the only song I've ever written about a hangover. And I, I guess it hit a nerve with a lot of people. <laughs> I love it. How did you come up with the idea, to, instead of just saying, do you feel, how, do you, how did you come up with the second you, the, the echo of the do you, you? <laughs> it's, it's, just the, um, it, it's just the way it, uh, the chords went. Do you... And then I could have sung a different word, but <laughs> it seemed like a good good idea. Repetition is good yeah, in baby. songs. That's, that, that, <laughs> that's fantastic. That's awesome. Oh, that's awesome. All right, so so you've 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 been compiling all these in your first four albums, and then then what's the idea of of all right? We're gonna combine all this and go live with Frampton Comes Alive. I mean, were you? You even you had to be blown away at how huge this sucker became. I mean, this thing was put you on Rolling Stone magazine and, and everything. I mean, it went it went gangbusters. So, uh, do you remember what what's sort of the idea of let's package all this into into the live set and and you know and sell that as an album? Well, it all came from following the template that w- had been laid out uh, by Humble Pie. Humble Pie had four four studio records. And then we did a live album because the response live was greater than the record sales. Mm-hmm. Um, so we thought we'd give them what they want. Um, and it worked for Rock in the Fillmore is, is uh, still, you know, obviously a, a fantastic live album, too. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was our first, oh, well, the only gold album I had with Humble Pie because I left before it came out. But um, uh, so there we are, four, so, four solo albums, and we looked, and the same thing was happening, the, the building of, you know, four years' work building around Europe and, and uh, America, playing in front of as uh, many people as possible in as short a space of time as you could. Um, we were at the pitch. Um, my act was at the pitch where I was in the middle act, and sometimes in smaller places, I was actually starting to headline. So, uh, and San Francisco, Detroit, and New York were kind of markets that were ahead of everywhere else in the country for me. And uh, it just rooted well that we record in San Francisco. And that was the first time we headlined there, which was Winterland. So 8,000, I think, 8,000 seats. And, uh, and, you know, the rest is history. That was just one of those nights that you get where everyone comes off, the, the whole band comes off and says, wow, I had a really good night. That was one of my better nights. And and everyone came off. It was the perfect night, you know. You get about a half a dozen of those on a tour. I mean, the rest are good. Um, you know, even the worst show uh musically or performance wise is always good but we are so hypercritical of 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 each band is you know right. of performance that 
when you do get one of those nights, it's kind of special. And then you usually go, wow, I wish we'd recorded that. And we said, we did. <laughs> so, um, you know, that was it. And we went to listen to it a week later down in Los Angeles, uh, Wally Hyder's studio. And that that was the truck we used. And um, we were blown away by it. You know, it was the energy of it. And that really comes across. Yeah, and those live versions are still played on the radio today. You can be flipping through and you'll still catch them. It's pretty incredible. Um, take me into the talk box. How did you start weaving that into your live shows? And, you know, more broadly, how does it feel to be associated with, a with you know, an instrument? Like, not every person, not every artist is associated with something. But, like, when you think talk box, you're the first person I think of. Yes, um, I, I have to always... Um extend uh, uh, my arm and point to um, Joe Walsh, because mm. Joe Walsh had uh, a hit, Rocky Mountain Way, with the talk box on it before me, the year before. And we were touring together. I was supporting Joe, and I had a talk box. And uh, I was using it on, um, on Do You Feel? That was the first time I used it, was I introduced it on that at the end. Uh, probably around 74 and and obviously show me the way hadn't been written yet so it wasn't on that one um so we would support joe and i would come out before him and use the talk box um and people loved it obviously but then joe's big hit rocky mountain way was the talk box so there's a there was a little bit of um I'm not sure how thrilled he was about that. Put it that way. Um, uh, <laughs> I would have asked... spoken uh, over the years recently, and um, you know, he he is uh, uh, he is the custodian. I, I, I he was the first guy contemporary to use it. Whereas you know, the thing was invented in the 1940s, um, uh, a very crude version of it. And then Pete Drake, the pedal steel player that I met on on the All Things Must Pass sessions in London when we were doing George's album. And uh, Pete Drake got out this talk box and plugged things into things and put a pipe in his mouth, and the pedal steel started singing to me. And that's when my jaw dropped. And that's when I said, where'd you get that? I need one. And he said, I made it myself. Well, that exact one that I went to America and, and found that Bob Heil was making them, but... Mm. That exact one that I saw Pete Drake use, he lent to Joe Walsh. Wow. And that's the one that is actually on Rocky Mountain Way. Wow. So it's, it's, uh, it's in, the talk box has an incestuous history. <laughs> so, um, but it's, um, it's something that is very simple, um, not expensive, um, but it's a very, very powerful communication tool. Um, now everybody, everybody thinks it's a talk box, but it's auto tune, you know. Yeah. Um, but there's still something very, um, uh, what's the word? Um, it's very, very analog. Uh, the talk box, and it's it's very human sounding, whereas the vocoder and auto tune is much more computer like. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, we actually talked to Joe Walsh, uh, what was it, I guess like last year. Um, he was a great chat, but 
You're just as good, my friend. We really appreciate your time. Uh, you've been more than generous here. We've, we're almost like on a half hour, so we, we really appreciate it. Uh, oh, you're welcome. Let's uh, just just in closing, you know how you know bring it back to the Kennedy Center. You know how cool is it to be performing with you know family out there? Well, that's great. We have the family bus. You know, me and my son and and my friends, my best friends, basically uh, are on the bus, and so it's it's. Uh, uh, just an honor, and especially when Julian comes out. He comes out and does a couple of numbers with us, too, because he's, he and I wrote a song that was on the Thank You, Mr. Churchill record mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago, and, and uh, that was the song that he sang that we wrote was probably the most most played song, you know, that, that the suggested track, as it were. And um, so I'm very proud of him. Awesome. That's so cool. Uh, all right. In, in closing, why should why should our folks come out? If they're on the fence, it, even though they shouldn't be because it's Peter freaking Frampton, but <laughs> why, should they, <laughs> why should they come out? What, what, what gets them out there? Well, I think, I think there's a side, uh, you, you get a whole other side of, uh, uh, I think this is, this is a concert where, you know, when, when I come out with the band, you know, you're sitting down and you, and you sit back in your seat and you, you find, okay, this is, this is the level they're going to play and, and it's sort of in your face with the band. Um, not overly loud, but it's in your face. You know, it's, it's rock level. Whereas this is more like you're sitting at home on your couch and, and you put on something that's, that's acoustic and what happens is you sit forwards and you want to really get into what's in what's going on and i think that's what the combination of the music and the the storytelling um does um uh, during during this show the raw acoustic shows it, it's something very different for me and for the audience and i've had people come to both types of shows, you know, we've been watching you come out with the band for years and years and years, and we love the band, but this is something totally different, and we think we like it even better, you know. Yeah. I said, well, that's great, you know, that's then, then I've achieved my objective, that it's, it's, it's another side, it's a 180-degree switch. Awesome. Mr. Frampton, thanks so much for joining us. It was awesome. And you're going to make a great storyteller at Kennedy Center because listen to these stories here you told today. It was awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.